Gotta do what I gotta do. Hello and welcome to episode number six of the MMA Rundown. My name is Ben Gordon. I'll be your host again. And to get started for this week, um, the UFC's got a big event coming up. They've been silent for the last couple of weeks, but they've got uh, UFC 210 coming up. Uh, a couple of huge fights on the top of the building and a few other really good ones that are um, mixed out throughout the card. Uh, but to start off, I'll just go through the Bellator results. This is a pretty big week for Bellator. Um, they were having a pretty big press tour for their pay-per-view announcement in New York City. They had the fight with Rampage and King Mo to end the week in Rosemont or in Chicago, Illinois. And just to go through that card, the first fight on the main card was Noad Lahad versus Lloyd Carter. Um, Carter looked to be pretty out of shape for the weight class. It had a decent amount of body fat on him, which you, you see occasionally at heavyweight, but not so much in the lighter weight classes. Lahat was a superior grappler and just controlled the fight for the most part and ended up finishing him in the second round with a rear naked choke, I believe. Um, next fight on the card was Steve Cazola versus Jake Roberts. Cazola just looked fantastic. Fight did not last very long at all. He got a knockout in the first 30 seconds. Called out Dylan Danis afterwards. Now, Cazola's a 8-0 pretty good veteran. Danis obviously would be making his debut. If you're Bellator, it's nice that Cazola's trying to get the heat on him, but I don't know if that's the fight you want to put Danis in right away. I think you probably want to give him something a little bit more manageable. is going to be a tough guy. I'd imagine Danis could take him down, but he wouldn't be easy to get down, and obviously if he's on the feet, he should have a pretty good advantage over Danis. So I wouldn't expect to see that fight, but good on Cazola for calling out the guy who everyone else has been calling out lately. Next fight on the card was Emmanuel Sanchez versus Marcus Galvao. Galvao, of course, a former champion. Sanchez, a uh, really tough guy. Not exactly great at any one thing, but he's good at a lot of things, especially his wrestling and his kickboxing. And he was able to kind of th- throw a lot of crazy stuff, keep the pressure up on Galvao. Galvao. Galvao wasn't able to play his game at all, and Sanchez won a pretty decisive a unanimous decision winning all three rounds and all three judges scorecards uh co-main event was sergey caratana versus chase gormley gormley i believe had fought in the ufc previously but he hasn't been a name that you've been hearing a lot lately but he's still a tough guy um caratana obviously great in the pride days but he's taken a lot of damage over his career uh you have to wonder what he's got left but for him things weren't going well right off the jump but he he caught Gormley later in the first round uh, drilled him with an uppercut and just put him out on his feet uh, fantastic win for Karatana but as far as where he goes from here uh, I, I don't know what the what Bellator is looking to do with their heavyweight division obviously their champion Minikov is no longer their champion he's been stripped they have a big fight in Fedor versus Mitrium but they're not making that a title fight it's not clear how they're looking to move forward, if they're looking to take guys like Caratana, like Fedor, like Mitrion, who are bigger names, and just kind of use them for super fights, or whether they're actually looking to move towards the title shot. But if they are looking to build towards a heavyweight champion, Caratana's one of the guys you might want to put in the mix, just because if he ends up still knocking guys out and having a good run, then good for him. That's not the worst guy you'd want to have as your champion. It's a pretty big name. But if he loses, then the guy who is your champion is able to build himself off of a pretty big name in Karatanov. And in the main event, uh, King Mo defeated Rampage Jackson. In their last fight, it was pretty similar in that King Mo was pretty dominant with the wrestling, and it appeared as though he was able to win with it. Uh, this fight, in some ways, it was similar to that. In the first round, King Mo was able to dominate with the wrestling. Second round, he got rocked by Rampage. Uh, Rampage even got him down at one point with a takedown. But Mo survived. He kept fighting through, and then eventually... Um, got out for the third round, won that round again with his wrestling, and then from there was able to secure the decision 29-28 on all three judges' scorecards. For as out of shape as Rampage was, he actually 
I mean, he stuck around in the later rounds more than I would have expected him to. Pretty good fight out of him, but it seems like this is probably going to be his last fight in Bellator. I don't know whether he's looking to be done with the sport entirely right now. Obviously, the big quote from Fight Week was that he wished he never had started MMA in the first place. And now that he's out of his Bellator contract, he doesn't really have to continue. So we'll see if that's the end of it for him. I, I would hope that he, if he is done, or if he's planning on being done soon, that he could at least get a win. Uh, give him someone, in, whether he re-signs with Bellator on a one-fight deal or whether he goes to the UFC, wherever he goes. I'd like to see him go out on a win because he's a very entertaining guy, great talker, a uh, fun fighter to watch, really good at using his wrestling. It, it, it's it's almost like he was a precursor for Rumble Johnson in a way where they both were really good wrestlers, but they didn't really use their wrestling offensively. They just used their striking rumble it's a hit punches harder, but also has better kicks too. So he was kind of like Rumble 1.0. Now we've got Rumble 2.0, which is the guy who's going to be fighting DC for a title. So fun fighter to watch. More entertaining than Rumble is on the mic, and you'd hate to see him go out with a loss to King Mo. In the main event of this weekend's fight card between Daniel Cormier and Anthony Rumble Johnson, they will be having a rematch of their 2015 fight. Uh, during that fight, Anthony Rumble Johnson was defeated in the third round by Rear Naked Choke. So what I decided to do is I decided to go back and watch the fight, see if there was anything in particular that stuck out to me that I didn't really notice the first time. Obviously, when you're watching the fight the first time, there's a lot of anticipation. So anytime something happens, it kind of gets blown out of proportion. And sometimes you're not paying attention to other things. Uh, on the second watch, Cormier was a lot more dominant than I had remembered in the first time that I had watched it. So the first time I watched it, obviously, you remember the time that Rumble came out early, dropped him with that overhand, uh, had Cormier flying to the ground, essentially, and had his moments there. He also had some head kicks that had landed or had been partially blocked, but even still, if you're using one hand and blocking a Rumble Johnson head kick, it's still it's brutal to take that regardless. It's not like just putting your hand up means that it doesn't hurt or you don't feel it or that it doesn't do any damage. So Rumble definitely had his highlights, but just to give a synopsis of how that fight went, first round, Rumble comes out. Um, DC's a little, a little bit worried about closing the range on him, but Rumble doing a good job with his hands, keeping the distance. He lands the punch, knocks DC down. Uh, when he chases DC, he throws another overhand, and during that process, uh, DC ducked underneath it and then ended up getting on his back and just started wrestling him. Uh, during that time period, it was about two and a half minutes. Rumble, he would go down, but he wouldn't really be down in a position where he had to play guard or anything. It was more just kind of like he'd be down on his knees or he'd be in a position where he had to kind of work his way back up and work his base back up, but eventually he did. Uh, when he got back up to his feet, threw a few kicks, threw a few punches. Um, pretty, I, I'd say he won the round, even though DC had a, a good amount of control time. Obviously, you rock the guy. DC was never close to finishing that fight, whereas Rumble was. So Rumble won the round, but it was more just kind of the highlight of knocking DC down and controlling the striking later on in the round, although he did have to deal with some more wrestling later on, too. Uh, second round comes around. Um, again, he's doing pretty well on the feet, lands a few kicks. Uh, gets a little too comfortable with the kicks, though. He landed a couple of head kicks, uh, threw a few body kicks, and then on one of his last body kicks, DC caught it, balled him into the fence, um, closed in on him, got a double leg, uh, took about five or six steps, carried him from the fence, obviously a little bit closer to the middle of the octagon, got into half guard, and from there was just beating on him for the rest of the round. And you could watch as that was happening that Rumble was just getting exhausted, and Obviously, by the end of the round, he had a tough time getting up. His coaches were saying, don't give up, don't give up, you still have it. But you can kind of see in his face that he he was in a position where he was going to have one final burst, and if that didn't get it done, then he was done. Comes out for the third round, you kind of get that burst. But again, 
Um, he goes to take down DC in the middle of an exchange. Actually does get a short-term takedown, but DC gets back up, eventually reverses the position, gets on top of Rumble. And from there, Rumble was just kind of turned up, didn't have a whole lot to give, and DC finished him. So the big question now is, obviously, that was two years ago. What what are the changes between both fighters? What's going to be different? So first off, during that first fight, Rumble had taken it on short notice. It was supposed to be John Jones, but that fight uh, fell apart. So you'd have to wonder, is his condition going to be better on the, better this time around? Is that going to matter? Now, when he had better conditioning in the first round, he was doing a much better job of fighting off the takedowns and getting up. Whereas in the second round, once he got taken down and kind of closer to the middle of the octagon and he had to work from half guard, he'd, he'd occasionally get some positions where he'd, he'd get onto his side, which is what you want on half guard. You don't ever want to be flying out in half guard unless you're in a deep half position. But even then, you're not sticking around there for very long. You're kind of using that position and working towards the sweep. Um, Rumble, anytime he'd get in a good position, he'd just kind of, like, he'd use his energy to get to the position where he'd get on his side, but he wouldn't ever, like, try to go for a single or do something to get himself back up onto his feet. Uh, so since then, he's talked a lot about how he's worked with Neil Melanson, how that how his grappling has gotten a lot better. Um, as far as technically, I, I don't know what kind of half guard work he's done, if he plans on, if he expects to be in half guard again, because, again, that, that was really where the fight got changed big time when Rumble was taken down, put in the half guard in the second round, and just couldn't get out. That's when a lot of his gas got sapped, and that's when DC was just building a lot of momentum. Uh, so this time around, if he's in better conditioning, maybe he's able to fight out of it. But again, to me, the biggest thing is that Rumble's biggest success in the first fight was when he threw that big overhand, but then he threw it again, and then that got him taken down. And then when he was throwing the kicks, but again, threw a couple more kicks, and then he got taken down off of that. So his biggest weapons ended up leading to DC's offense, and you have to wonder how his striking is going to change this time around. Is he going to be as aggressive as he was before? If If Rumble isn't aggressive on the feet then he's not really quite Rumble. He's not quite himself. I think what makes him so tough to deal with is when you know you're going to have trouble taking him down because he's a very good wrestler, and when you know that he's going to be coming after you and you can trade punch for punch with him, but his punches are going to land harder, and chances are he's going to win those exchanges. So for DC, he was successful when he got him up against the fence. You, you have to wonder if Rumble is going to... Well, if, if Rumble does what Rumble's good at, I think, which is what I think he's going to do, he's going to leave himself open to some takedowns like he did in the first fight, and I think DC's going to be able to take advantage like he did in the first fight. Uh, same thing with the kicks. I think DC's going to be ready to catch him. Now, again, he took some hard shots in the process of in the process of dealing with the overhand right and using that for a takedown. He took a huge shot and got knocked down in the process of the head kicks, or in, process, in the process of using the kicks. Again, took some really hard kicks. So, again, there's a chance that Rumble lands one of those flush and gets the finish, but... For the majority of the time of that fight, DC was in control, and I think that's what's going to happen again this time around. But uh, again, the the biggest question for, on DC's end, as far as what's changed, um, you'd imagine his striking's going to be a little bit better, but you also have to wonder how the injuries are going to be. He's training at a place that isn't exactly the easiest on the body. He's getting up there in his 30s. Um, if he does have some lingering injuries, that could play a big role. But just based off what I saw in the first fight, I don't think Rumble's improved enough for him to win this fight. In the co-main event, a couple of big middleweight title challengers are going to be going at it. So you've got the former middleweight champion and Chris Weidman, who is coming off of a loss to Luke Rockhold for the title, then followed that up with a loss to Yoel Romero, where he had definitely had some good spots. But obviously, uh, in the third round, he shot towards the wrong side, took a huge flying knee, and was finished at that point. So now he's looking to get himself back in the win column. But going against Gegard Mousasi isn't going to be easy. 
Uh, Musasi got a pretty good win streak going. The only recent loss he had was the loss to Uriah Hall, but he avenged that and did so in rather a spectacular fashion. Made it pretty clear that he's the better fighter. He he dominated the first round of the fight that he lost, but got caught in the second. So now seems to be the time for him to show that he's ready to go and show that he's ready for a title shot. And if he does get a win over Weidman, it's going to go a long way for him. As far as how I think this fight's going to go, uh, it, it's really interesting to me. So Weidman, or Musasi, his striking is what does a lot of work for him, but he's also really good at getting people down and kind of using his control from there. I don't think he's going to be able to control Chris Weidman in that way because I don't think he's going to be able to get Weidman down. I'd probably expect the opposite to happen. I'd expect Weidman to try to have a wrestling-centric game plan against him. Obviously, he'll he'll start off by trading on the feet. Uh, he's a pretty good striker in his own right. Obviously, he's knocked out Anderson Silva. That's not something that a bad striker does. But I'd, I'd expect Weidman to try to get in and get some takedowns. Control from the top. What What's really good about Weidman's game is that not only is he a good wrestler, but his top game jiu-jitsu is evolved with it. So one of my biggest pet peeves in wrestlers who transition to MMA is that when they get people on the ground and they get on top, they like to just settle and guard and just kind of dig their head down and throw a bunch of arm punches that aren't going to do any real damage, but they're just enough to keep the ref from standing it up. And you have to fight that style for a long time. You're not going to finish, and those fights get drawn out, and it puts you at risk of getting finished. To an extent, that's kind of what Chael Sonnen's MO was. Now, Chael would take a few more chances than I, I think necessary when he'd throw punches. He wasn't exactly the, the most heavy-handed guy, so he wouldn't really finish people with ground and pound. But when he'd get a little aggressive, sometimes he created too much space and gave his opponents openings. But what I like about Chris Weidman is that he looks to pass, and he does pass very well. Very, very solid top game, very difficult to deal with. So as good as Musasi is off of his back, I think Weidman should be able to start start to work some passes from the top, get into some stronger positions, then over time just be able to overwhelm him, and that's how I'd see this fight ending. But again, if Weidman wins this fight, because of the fact that he's coming off of two losses and both of the losses are to other contenders, not to the champion itself, I don't think you can really put him in a title shot right away. So even if he does win, uh, you, you figure Yuel Romero's next in line, but... I mean, who knows if Romero still has to keep waiting and they book him with a fight in a fight with Luke Rockhold in the meantime, uh, you wonder what happens then. You probably Jacare at that point gets the title shot, but you never know. Uh, same type of thing for Musasi. If Musasi wins, maybe he's a guy who you look at as next in line. Uh, after probably he'd probably be ahead of Rockhold at this point, but um, Jacare and Romero, if those two get booked for a rematch, that's also another possible matchup. You don't know what's happening with the middleweight division because again, we're waiting on. This GSP versus Bisping fight to be booked. Um, it hasn't yet. Bisping said that if GSP doesn't take it by July, he'd fight Romero. But would Bisping actually do that? I highly doubt it. It doesn't make sense for him. He's going to make a lot more money off of the GSP fight. So I don't see why he wouldn't wait a couple extra months and get what would be the easiest fight for him, but would also be the bigger money fight for him, a fight where he knows he's going to have pay-per-view points. Why risk it? Why Why possibly lose to Romero? And then maybe if he still gets the GSP fight after that, he's not going to have. He's probably not going to have the pay-per-view points because he doesn't have the belt at that point. So I, I just feel like he's, he's, he's essentially selling wolf tickets as one of GSP's old opponents would would say on that or on that end. But either way, um, pretty big opportunity for both of the guys. The one, the guy who loses this fight, it feels like both of these guys have a pretty decent separation between the bottom half, of the top ten, and where they're at. So even if, even if they lose, I mean. You look at some of the guys who are on the bottom half of the top 10, you know, maybe a Derek Brunson type of fight comes to the loser of it, but I'd imagine that either of these guys would beat someone like that and they'd be right back in it. But again, you'd rather keep moving up than to have to take a detour, fight someone towards the bottom half of the top 10 and work your way back. I usually like to break down three fights on the main cards of a lot of these UFC fights. 
Uh, for this one, as far as the other two outside of the main and co-main event between Cynthia Calvillo and Pearl Gonzalez, I really don't know a whole lot about either of the two fighters. Calvillo, we've seen just fight about half a round in the UFC so far against Amanda Cooper. Gonzalez, I haven't seen yet. Uh, Alves versus Cote is a good fight, and then also Brooks versus Oliveira is on the main card. I'm going to focus in on Will Brooks versus Char- Charles Oliveira because I think this is the more interesting fight. I think that the winner here has a lot more potential to work their way towards the top of a division, whereas Alves versus Cote, both of those guys have had title shots in the past. They've had their moments, but it doesn't feel like either of them are really ever going to break into the top 10 again, let alone break into the title picture. So as far as the Will Brooks versus Charles Oliveira fight goes, Brooks was a guy who had a win over Ross Pearson on his first fight since he came over here from Bellator. Won that fight, looked good in the first couple of rounds, uh, had to just kind of survive the third, had the next fight against... Um, Alex Cowboy Oliveira. Uh, Oliveira weighed in way above 155, and that was his one fight at lightweight. He ended up moving up after that. And he's a tough guy to deal with regardless. Brooks was doing okay in that fight, but had a rib injury that he suffered through the fight and just kind of wasn't wasn't able to hang in through the third round and lost that fight by finish. And this will be his next fight since then. So he'll be fighting Charles Oliveira, who had done pretty well at, fly, at featherweight. He's had some weight-cutting issues in the past where he hasn't always been able to make weight at that class. Uh, excellent offensive jiu-jitsu. His defensive jiu-jitsu, is, it's all right, but he's, he still gets caught in submissions every so often. He got caught by um, Ricardo Lamas. He also got caught by Anthony Pettis. So he'll be moving back up to lightweight. Hopefully the move up helps him out where he's not cutting as much weight. He's not as drained, and he's able to perform better even if it's against bigger guys. As far as how I see this fight going, what's interesting about Brooks is that he wins a lot of fights, and he was obviously very very effective in Bellator, but he's not exactly a guy who's got like one sort of trait or one sort of skill set that really stands out as something where it's like, oh, I have to fight Will Brooks, I have to deal with this specific thing. He's a pretty good striker, he hits hard, he's pretty aggressive. Um, decent wrestling background, he was a high school wrestler, I don't believe he wrestled in college, but... I mean, as far as what level he competed, I think as far as where his um, actual level is at, I mean, he'd probably be a decent college wrestler had he actually gone and done so. But again, there are D1 champions and other D1 wrestlers who float around in MMA. I mean, even Michael Chandler, who he had fought, was a D1 All-American. And I believe if he hadn't beaten Jordan, Jordan Burroughs during his time in college, he was up on Jordan Burroughs at one point. So a guy like Michael Chandler is a guy who Will Brooks was able to beat. And able to get a win over so it shows that even if he's not at the highest level he can kind of hang and be tough against those t- types of guys but his jiu-jitsu again he's not really submitting people it's not like his guard passing game is the slickest ever whereas Oliveira uh when you look at him you you see some things that are spe- or specifically really strong with him so obviously his offensive jiu-jitsu he's very good off of his back um obviously he's got a good good passing game off his back he can sweep he can submit uh, has a lot of different submissions in his repertoire. He's hit stuff between his reverse cast slicer against um, Eric Wisely to just more typical guillotines, which he's been pretty effective with. Um, I know he had a pretty good one against Jonathan Brookins in the past, but he's beaten a lot of really good guys with submissions. So if you look at this matchup, you'd have to figure if Brooks tries to take him down and play the grappling game with him, that's not going to be the smartest move for him. On the feet, Oliveira's really long, and he's got a pretty decent Muay Thai game. He's not exactly the most explosive guy he's not really putting guys out with kicks or knees or elbows necessarily but he's he's definitely jacking guys up so if you're will brooks and you don't have exactly the best jujitsu game you probably don't want to grapple with Oliveira on the feet it'll be interesting to see how he deals with the length 
But I think if he can make this fight dirty, if he can kind of clinch up with him against the fence, not really. If he takes him down play, it's kind of safe. I don't think you really want to go grappler for grappler on it and try to pass guards and try to submit him. I think you just kind of want to play it safe. If you do get him down, then just kind of watch your posture, throw some safe strikes, maybe try to get back to your feet. But outside of that, it, it what's, what's so interesting about, to this to me about this fight is that on the feet, Oliveira has a real way to win this fight. I think his length can be a problem. Um, if he can take some shots, which, I mean, Brooks Brooks hits hard, but Brooks isn't exactly known for knocking everybody that he fights out. But if he can take some shots and just kind of use his length, maybe he beats a guy like Will Brooks on the feet. If this fight goes to the ground, um, it'll be interesting to see how aggressive Oliveira is. Is he able to submit Brooks? Is, he, is Brooks able to stay out of the submissions and just kind of pound him out and kind of grind on him? It, it'll be... It'll be a very interesting matchup for me. I, I think as far as who I'd pick between the two, what's interesting, what's most um, surprising to me is that in Vegas or on, on the odds makers on this, Brooks is almost a three to one favorite on some sites, depending on where you go. I think that's a big mistake on their part, unless they know something about Oliveira that I don't, unless they know that he's moving up or for some kind of reason, or maybe he feels like he's done with the sport. He's not going to be a champion. And now he's just trying to fight out his contract. Unless there's something that these odds makers know that I don't. I think that this fight's a lot closer than that. I'm going to be putting some money on Oliveira, even though I think this is a very close fight and I'm not exactly sure that Oliveira is going to win. I think for those kinds of odds, you kind of have to play on that. And quite frankly, Oliveira, if it's a stand-up only fight, who do you pick? Do you pick Brooks or Oliveira? I mean, there's a real argument for Oliveira. If it's a grappling match, who do you pick, Brooks or Oliveira? Probably Oliveira. So for, for me, I think the safe bet here is going to be Oliveira, but this is a very competitive fight. It's one that I'm really excited to see. UFC 210 isn't littered with all the big-name fights that UFC 211 is, but it still has a lot of really good fights that are kind of scattered throughout the undercard and even obviously on the main card as well. So just going from bottom to top, the first fight on the card is going to be Janelle Lausa, uh, known as the Demolition Man, versus Magomed Bibulatov. I don't know either of these guys. I'm just going off of what I'm reading. It looks like Bibulatov is a 13-0 guy, um, probably out of Russia, so I would assume, based off of knowing anything else and just kind of looking at the name, he's probably a really good wrestler, probably one of those Dagestani wrestlers, but again, I'm not entirely sure. He could be a great striker for all I know. But um, obviously the flyweight division is looking for some more prospects, and this seems like a fight where the winner could kind of see himself in a position where he's a couple fights away from a top 15 fight, so good opportunity for those guys. Uh, the next fight on the card is Caitlin Chukagian versus Irene Aldana. Uh, both of these girls have fought in the UFC already. Chukagian had her debut against Liz Carmouche. She was favored to win that fight, lost a closer decision, got out grappled towards the end, but she's a really talented fighter. That was 8-0 up to that point, 8-1 now. Uh, Aldana's pretty pretty talented in her own right, but I think Chukagian, this will be her opportunity to get a win in the UFC. I think... Leading into the Carmouche fight, she's looked at it as someone who could sneak her way into the top 15 pretty quickly, and I think this is going to be a good opportunity for her to get get back on the right footing and work her way towards the top of her division. Uh, next fight on the card is Josh Emmett versus Desmond Green. Emmett's the guy we're all pretty familiar with. Um, he's 10-0 UFC veteran. Desmond Green, I believe, is making his debut. Uh, I, I'd expect to see Emmett probably win this fight as well. Wins a lot of his fights by decision, but so does Green. So this might not be the most exciting fight, but still a good Good opportunity for both of the guys involved. And the main event for the fight pass prelims is Gregor Gillespie versus Andrew Holbrook. Holbrook's a really talented fighter, but the thing with Gillespie that interests me is that a lot of times when I hear American Top Team guys interviewed, his name comes up as someone that they're really high on. 
And if you're in a room like the ATT room and a lot of the guys keep on talking about you as someone that they think is a potential, whether it's a champion or a top contender, that's a really good sign. So I'd like to see what Gillespie has to offer just kind of based off of what I, how much I respect all these ATT guys. For them to be so high on Gillespie, I, I'd have to pick him to win this fight. And I think that he's got a bright future ahead of him. But Holbrook's no joke himself, so it'll be fun to see these two go at it. I'd expect to see Gillespie win. But again, don't be surprised if Holbrook shows up really strong as well. Uh, first fight on the FS1 prelims. This one is kind of weird because on the UFC site, it actually says that they're both number 12 in the division. So it's Patrick Cummins versus Jan Blakovich. Uh, Blakovich probably shouldn't be number 12. I think he should be a little bit higher. If you remember, he was working his way up in the light heavyweight division, had a fight with Alexander Gustafson that was kind of, it was supposed to be like a good, I, I guess it was like a comeback fight for Gustafson in a way where he wasn't entirely sure if he wanted to stay in the sport. Um, decided to come back, didn't want to fight against like a top five guy, so they gave him Blakovich. He just kind of wrestled him and played it really safe. Blakovich is a really good fighter, but again, so is Gustafson. Blakovich, I believe, is a brown belt in jiu-jitsu. Very tough striker, too, really strong, um, really aggressive, gets after you. Cummins, again, has his great wrestling background. I believe he was second to Daniel Cormier for an Olympic wrestling spot at one point. But he's a guy who's been a little bit chinny in his fights. You'd have to wonder... Blakovich isn't necessarily known for just like blasting people, but he he can still hit pretty hard. He can put the pressure on. So it'll be cool to see whether Cummins goes out there and tries to strike with him. Does he try to wrestle him, get on top, and kind of do something similar to what Gustafson did? And if he does, how that will work out. But I think that's going to be a pretty fun fight. I don't know that I expect a finish in, a finish in it necessarily, but I think it's going to be an interesting style matchup. And probably after the first round or so, you'll have an idea of who's going to win. But a good fight nonetheless. Uh, next fight after that is Hurricane Shane Burgos versus Charles Rosa. Burgos, a um, really strong athletic guy, hits very hard. Uh, he's probably another one of those guys where he's probably a fight or two away from working his way into the top 15. I'd expect him to win this fight. He looked great in his previous fight. And R Rosa's a tough guy, but I, I, what I've seen from Burgos is really impressive. He's going to be tough for a lot of guys to deal with, so I, I give him the advantage there. Uh, next fight on the card is Kamaru Usman versus Sean Strickland. Usman, fantastic wrestler. Um, he's just been using his wrestling to just dominate people. I think his last fight was Alexander Yakovlev. Uh, same type of thing. Yakovlev is a very good grappler, but Usman was just able to control him and beat on him for three rounds and get the win. Strickland, also a pretty good wrestler. He's got some interesting submissions, too. He's a pretty nifty guy. He's 18-1 and one as well. He... He's no joke. I think the question here is going to be, is as good as Strickland is all around, if Kamaro can go strength for strength as far as the wrestling goes and beat him, uh, how's Strickland going to be able to handle working off of his back with a guy like Usman on top of him? And if Strickland's able to defend the takedown, you'd probably figure the rest of his game's a little bit more well-rounded than Usman. So the real question here is going to be, can Kamaro Usman use his wrestling to dominate a guy in Sean Strickland who's a pretty good wrestler on his own right? And if he can, I would obviously imagine this would be a pretty dominant fight for him. I'm going to pick the upset here, though. I'm going to say Sean Strickland's going to win because I think he's going to be able to get Usman off of him, and if he's not able to get him off of him in the first round, I think over time he's going to be able to fight it off and maybe win the fight in the later rounds. But he's he's a guy who's 18-1, and one, but somehow he remains under the radar, and somehow we're not looking at him as a top 15 guy. But if he can beat a guy in Usman who's ranked 11th, uh, he'll finally start to get the attention I think he deserves. And the final fight on the FS1 prelim card is the return of Miles Jury, who we haven't seen since the Donald Cerrone fight with the now infamous fuck you kicks, where he'd be on the ground and Cerrone would just be kicking the shit out of his legs. 
Um, he's returning against Mike Delatore, who is sharing the El Kakui nickname with Tony Ferguson. This is going to be an interesting fight for me because I think Jury should, just skill-wise, Jury should win this fight, but we haven't seen Jury for a while. I don't know why that is. If there's some lack of passion for the sport, if that's why it, what it was, if he was taking the time to heal up. I don't know what the reason for his long layoff was, and I don't know how he's going to handle it. But if this fight goes as the skill sets would imply, you'd have to figure that Jury's going to win the fight. I'll pick him, but I'm not super confident about it just because of the layoff. Uh, and then on the main card, uh, we, we talked about the Brooks Oliveira fight already, where I believe that should be the third fight in line as far as what's most interesting to me. Uh, obviously, Will Brooks, former Bellator champion Oliveira, a guy who's been hanging around the top 10 both at flyweight, or not flyweight, at featherweight and at um, lightweight. Uh, next fight on the card is Tiago Alves versus Patrick Cote. Cote, the former middleweight who's now fighting at welterweight. Um, Alves, the former title challenger back at UFC 100, who hasn't been the most active fighter lately. Um, both guys like to strike. Alves with more of the Muay Thai style, whereas Cote, also a good kickboxer, but he likes to throw his hands a little bit more. Uh, is the favorite on the betting lines on this one. I I feel like that's pretty accurate. Alves seems like a guy where he, his best days are behind him. Not to say that Cote has a great run ahead of him too, but I think he's a little bit better than Alves is at this point in his career. Uh, then there's Cynthia Calvillo versus Pearl Gonzalez. Calvillo just fought Amanda Cooper on UFC 209's main card. Uh, got a win there. Or I think that was 209. It was either 209 or 208. But she she got the win by submission there and included that Anaconda choke to back take to the rear naked choke. Uh, great look for her. It sounds like there's a lot of hype, hype for her coming out of Team Alpha Male. But we've only seen her in one fight, and Pearl Gonzalez is someone we haven't seen yet. So the, the unfortunate thing here is even if she has another impressive win, you don't really know how good Pearl Gonzalez is, so it doesn't really tell you much about Calvillo. And if Gonzalez gets the win again, Calvillo's only had one fight in the UFC, so what do we really know about her either? Uh, coming event, Chris Weidman versus Gegard Mousasi again. This fight's going to have a big say on the middleweight division. I think if Weidman wins, yeah, Mousasi's a big name to beat, but because he had a few losses in a row prior to that, you probably... You're still looking at guys like Luke Rockhold ahead of him. You're still looking at um, Yoel Romero ahead of him. Uh, whereas if Musasi gets the win, depending on how people get booked, he might slip his way into a title shot a lot sooner. And then the main event is the rematch between Daniel Cormier and Rumble Johnson, which again, I went into depth on that and how the first fight won and how I think the second fight should be fairly similar in that regard. On the MMA Hour, Dylan Danis came on to announce his signing with Bellator, but then also to talk about how he has a fight with Submission Underground coming up where he'll be fighting Jake Shields, which I think is actually going to be a really fascinating match. Shields is really good at getting guys down and then really controlling from there. If you'd remember his fight with Damian Maya, he was able to actually win a what was essentially a grappling match in MMA, and he beat Damian Maya in that. So he's a guy who can hang with anyone, and I imagine he can hang with Dylan Danis as well. Uh, Danis, as I've talked about in the past, he has pretty good wrestling in his own right and is able to work from top. So it'll be interesting to see how they approach the match, whether Danis wants to take bottom or whether Danis tries to actually out-wrestle Jake Shields, get on top of him, and then work from there. So that on its own will be fun. But what I'm, why I'm really talking about Dylan Danis is because I think he did something that was brilliant. And what he did was he went on Ariel Hawani's show and he made the claim that he is the highest-paid fighter in Bellator. Now here's the thing. Society, sometimes we're a little too susceptible to being trolled, and this is just a great troll on his part. So when somebody says something wild and we know that they know it's false, 
it doesn't really matter that much to us. But when somebody says something wild and we think that they actually believe it, then people go nuts. And the biggest case in sports right now would be LeVar Ball, who is the father of the three. His three sons are all top basketball recruits. Lonzo Ball went to UCLA this year. He'll be drafted probably in the top three, if not number one overall this year. And his other sons are pretty high-level recruits. And he's gotten in some hot water among the fans for saying stuff to the matter of, I would have beaten Michael Jordan one-on-one. My son can be like Magic Johnson, but with a better shot. Uh, A lot of crazy stuff like that, but he's getting constant attention. He's being brought on to ESPN uh, to talk on the first take show. He's been brought on to Fox Sports 1. He's talked with Colin Coward and a lot of the other top personalities there. And the reason why he keeps getting so much attention is because when he says these things, people think he actually means it. So when he says, oh, my son can win more titles than Michael Jordan, or I can beat Michael Jordan in one-on-one, people are like, oh, no, that's wrong. I, I want to prove him wrong. I want to tell you why I think he's wrong. And it just spurs on more conversation about him. And he's gotten so much attention from doing that. And with Dylan Dennis, when he said that he was the highest paid re- fighter in Bellator and said it as if he believed it, it drew attention from Ariel Hawani when he said it, but it also leaked into other interviews. So during this whole week where Bellator had all this media coming, you were hearing a lot of the top guys. You were hearing Michael Chandler, the lightweight champion, talking about Dylan Dennis. You were hearing Matt Mitrione talking about Dylan Dennis. A lot of these interviews with other guys end up having Dylan Dennis's name pop up in them just because he made it seem as though he actually believed he's the highest paid fighter in Bellator. And that's smart on his part. He's getting his name in a lot of people's mouth. In MMA, the biggest thing you want to be able to do is to get attention from the press. Um, what's what's interesting about the media, or what's good about the media, is when you have sites like MMA Fighting, um, Bloody Elbow, MMA Junkie, what they are is they're these platforms that all of the people who are really interested in the sport, they all go there. So a lot of times in advertising, you're looking for a target market and you usually have to pay a lot to get to the target market to spread your message. As a fighter, your target market is fight fans and the fight fans all generally like to go to these websites, whether it's your MMA fighting or wherever else. And if you can get your message there for free, then that's even better. And obviously most fighters aren't going to actually pay these web outlets to spread their message, but you get the point. It's, it's valuable to be heard on those sites and to be repeated over and over. So when he's getting his own interview, that's big. But for him to work his way into other people's interviews, whether it's Michael Chandler, whether it's Matt Mitrione, um, anyone else in the company, that's big for him. That's more attention for him, and that's going to build his brand even more. So for him, he's he's embracing the heel, and he's doing a good job of it. And I, I feel like the more he does this game of, let me say something outlandish, and let me make it seem like I actually believe it, whether it's him talking shit about John Jones, uh, him talking shit about a lot of guys, really, if people bite into it and they're like, you know what, I think he actually believes it and I'm pretty sure he's wrong and I want to hear why he's wrong, I want to see why he's wrong, I want to see him proven wrong, you're only feeding into what he wants. So great job on his part to do that. Uh, you don't want to overuse the tactic of just saying out- outrageous sh- shit. He's obviously going to have his debut at some point. He's going to have to back up what he's saying, but his skill set is great. He can definitely back up a lot in the cage and we'll we'll get to see fairly soon what he's able to do. Cody Garbrandt and TJ Dillashaw are set to fight for the 135 title um, relatively soon. They've got their season with Ultimate Fighter coming up, so obviously they'll have to go through the entire season and work that way through the buildup. But in a recent interview, Cody Garbrandt had talked about his goals in terms of what he wants to do, whether it's at 135 and be a long-term champion there, um, what he wants to do beyond that. And he drew some attention saying that he wants to be a three-division weight champion. Obviously, Conor McGregor is the first one to simultaneously hold two belts. Uh, Garbrandt wants to hold more than two. He wants to hold three. 
right now he's at 135. The other two weight classes he's talking about would be 125 and 145. So he's looking at Mighty Mouse Johnson at 125 and then 45. Right now it's kind of up in the air between Holloway and Aldo. That'll get settled relatively soon. But as far as what I think about this, I've said before, and I think I'm going to stick with it because I really like what he's doing. Even though Cody Garbrandt, personally, he's the kind of guy where when I watch him fight, I kind of want to see him lose. For whatever reason, just seeing a guy with a gun tattooed in his waistband or the diamond tattooed on his neck that says self-made, like, there's something just inherently douchey about his look that where it's like you just want to see him lose. And even though he's got the good stuff going with Maddox Maple where he's taking care of a former cancer survivor, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, great on him on that behalf, but you know he's definitely done some stuff in his past that's pretty reprehensible. But that's beside the point. I, I think that about him is a good thing for him because in MMA and just as far as sports entertainment goes, to be one of those guys where you're going to have people who love you, people who see your tattoos and like it, and people who see it and hate it. Uh, they're going to want to see you either way. So whether you want to watch Cody Garbrandt lose his next fight or whether you want to watch him win, you're still watching him, and that's good for him. And that's really big in building a star. Obviously, not everybody who watches Conor McGregor wants to see him win. Uh, there was plenty of cheering at, when I was at the bar at, at UFC 196 when Nate Diaz beat him. A lot of people were really happy at that time. So the same type of thing can happen for Cody Garbrandt if he does lose. But between him and Dillashaw, that's a fight that's going to be really interesting because it sounds like it was pretty even in the training room. Uh, they haven't been training together for the last couple of years. You'd wonder who's improved more since then. Obviously, Dillashaw being a former Alpha Male guy, he, he's improved since then. But within that camp and even within Cody Garbrandt, when you've got guys who've train together for so long even if one guy is noticeably better against other guys when two people train together a lot of times they learn each other's tendencies so the gap gets really close on that end but if Garbrandt is able to get the better of Dillashaw if he does win that matchup and he does look to go to other weight classes I think that matchup with um Dominic or Demetrius Johnson is actually a really interesting one what's really good about Mighty Mouse is he's really good all around he's good on the ground he's good on the feet a good wrestler but if he's ever fighting someone and he's striking with them and he's having difficulty striking, he can get the fight to the ground pretty quickly and then just get in control from there. Um, if he's not exactly doing great on the ground, then he can make it more of a stand-up fight and start controlling from there. But in a fight with a guy like Garbrandt, if you're on the feet, that's going to be a tough one for him to control regardless. Now, he's going to be pretty quick. His footwork's going to work out for him. But again, he's going to be outsized by Garbrandt, so that'll be a tough spot for Mighty Mouse to deal with. If Mighty Mouse does have trouble with Garbrandt's boxing, again, his boxing is fantastic. Uh, Good luck getting him down. Garbrandt's a guy who, even though his resume only really says that he was a high school All-American, the guy easily would be a D1 wrestler if he had continued wrestling. Obviously, he's been wrestling a lot of Team Alpha Male, so it's not like he just stopped doing the sport or stopped grappling whatsoever. Cruz is very effective at getting people down. He had no luck in doing that against um, Garbrandt. You'd have to wonder if Mighty Mouse would be able to get him down. If not, and he's having trouble on the feet, and he gets forced into a boxing match with Cody Garbrandt, which is no easy task. How does he do there? I think that's a real matchup where, with a lot of these guys who are seeing Mighty Mouse fight, it, it doesn't really feel like there's any great opportunity or any chance for them to trap him in one area of the game that they can beat him. With Cody, I think he might be able to do that. It's just I don't know that Cody's going to be able to make 25. I don't know if he wants to do a catch weight at 130 and just kind of have a super fight. But if he's talking about being a three-division weight champion, you have to cut down to 25 to win the 25 belt. So if that ever happens, I actually think that could be a great fight, not just for Cody, but for both of them. One of the problems that Mighty Mouse has had is that he hasn't really had a a good nemesis. He's been so dominant in most of his fights that we haven't really had a fight where it's like, oh, oh, Mighty Mouse is fighting, say, Benavides, or Mighty Mouse is fighting Dotson. I can't wait to see what happens here. Like, 
you kind of know when it's Mighty Mouse versus Name Your Fighter. Mighty Mouse is going to win, and he's going to look really good in doing so. So if he has a fight with Garbrandt, and if it's even competitive in the first fight, regardless of who wins, that could finally be the matchup and the rivalry for Mighty Mouse that he needs to finally build himself into a star. And hopefully if Garbrandt does beat him, that he's able to still do well out of that and build a name for himself because he deserves to be a lot bigger than he is. But again, he's not doing a great job of getting his name out there and he's not exactly having guys where he's building good rivalries with. So it's tough to have people watch Mighty Mouse and get super excited about a fight that's coming up with him or remember him from a super exciting rivalry and want to see him fight again. And then at 45, um, it, it seems like by the time that's all settled, uh, whether it's your Jose Aldo or Max Holloway or maybe even someone else, it seems like all the top guys at featherweight are bigger guys than Cody, but they're all guys who strike really well. Uh, all guys who can grapple pretty decently too, but their striking seems to be their strongest aspect. So it'll be interesting to see how a, a Max Holloway versus Cody Garbrandt fight would look. I think that would interest me the most. Aldo versus Garbrandt would be pretty good, but we've seen Aldo against a lot of the other alpha male guys in the past, whether it was Faber, uh, a couple fights with Mendez. Um, even if Garbrandt's a little better than those guys, I don't know that the fights are going to be drastically different unless it's just a matter of Garbrandt hitting harder than Mendez or anyone else and being able to finish where other guys weren't. Whereas Holloway is a guy who's really technical striker, really good at making in-fight adjustments, and you'd like to see... Ha- we saw a guy in Dominic Cruz who's also great at making in-fight adjustments, and he lost a couple of later rounds. Um, would Holloway do a better job? Would Holloway also have trouble? It, it'll, it'll be interesting to see either way, but if if that's something that Cody wants to do, I'm definitely in supportive of it. I think there's some really interesting fights to make there. Yes, it might suck for the Bantamweight class if they're champions fighting at 25 or 45, but there's there's something really interesting to see there, and I think it'd be worth the trouble. If you have to do an interim title, so be it, but those are... Those are fights that I really would be interested in seeing. Still in the news for his lawsuit against the UFC, um, having come on coming off a loss against Alistair Overeem, now being booked to fight Derek Lewis, uh, Mark Hunt decided that he wanted to get a new chest tattoo. Uh, recently put it up on his Instagram. Obviously, I have the picture on YouTube if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, it's got three skulls with samurai helmets on, so I'd imagine it's supposed to be like dead samurais. I'm not entirely sure of what the meaning of it is. The art itself is actually pretty stunning and pretty spectacular. Uh, you can tell whoever drew the art on it is incredibly talented. But as far as what some of the fan reactions are, I think this has been something that's had some pretty funny fan reactions, so I wanted to go over it quickly. This won't be as long as a lot of the other analyses that I've had as far as how some of these fights are going to go or who I think is going to win. Um, one of the funnier things that I had heard is someone said that it looked like an affliction tattoo that or affliction shirt that was just permanently tattooed on his chest where he got the skulls. Uh, we've seen some, some shirts in the past where you kind of have like the, the skulls on the chest and all the other stuff. Um, there's obviously talk about the Brock rivalry where they're saying who's got the worst chest tattoo. Um, Brock, Brock Lesnar with the dick sword on his throat or uh, Mark Hunt with the three samurais. Uh, you'd have to say that Brock Lesnar still takes the cake on that one. Um, if Mark Hunt, after his career is over, if he gains some weight... How are the samurais going to look? Uh, there's talk maybe on his breast that if they kind of get bigger as he gets older, that it might just have like a samurai in the middle with a decent-sized jaw, but then the other two have really deep underbites. So overall, I just think it's just some, some funny things to hear about. it. Personally, I'm not a big tattoo guy. Uh, obviously, in MMA, a lot of guys have tattoos. Uh, some of them are more simple, where it's just kind of like a basic little tribal thing. Uh, some are small, some are big. 
Uh, you have a couple guys like your Tony Ferguson or your Ben Henderson when they got gigantic angel wings on their back. So, I mean, to each their own. If it makes you happy, then do it. It's obviously, you're, it's your money you're paying for yourself. Now, obviously, it's kind of weird for a guy like Mark Hunt, who had previously gone on the MMA Hour, talked about how he's having so much trouble paying to get food in his kid's mouth when he was dealing with the UFC and they're paying and, and what they paid him. Uh, talking about how he wanted to get some more money out of Lesnar after he failed the drug test, and here he is with fancy wristwatches on, taking pictures of what you would have to imagine are some pretty pricey tattoos. But you know, as long as he's taking care of himself, that's up to him. He's his own man. He can he can get a gigantic tattoo that's going to be on his body the rest of his life, and when he's older, he'll. I mean, I guess he, whether he's fat or not, the Samurais will probably have an underbite when he's older anyway. So you know, that, that's up to him, but. Pretty interesting to see. We'll obviously see it come out against the fight in, or when he fights Derek Lewis, and you know that fight on its own. Obviously, when we get close to that, then I'll break it down as far as who I think is going to win. But you know, Mark Hunt is keeping himself in the news, whether it's good or bad. I guess. On last week's podcast, I had done a little thing on California and how the California State Athletic Commission is looking to put some new rules in place to deal with some of the issues we've had in the past with weight cutting as far as guys cutting too much weight or fighters missing weight. And I had gotten a comment on the clip that I put out on YouTube on that video that I thought was pretty interesting and worth having its own segment on this episode. So what the comment was essentially saying, and it's not something that was even just specific to that comment, but it's something that you see a lot as an MMA fan. You see it on a lot of comment sections on MMA sites, whether it's the comment section on an MMA fighting article on Facebook or whether it's just on the articles themselves, whether it's MMA fighting, MMA junkie, uh, the underground, wherever you go. And it's fans saying, and this is partly due to what fighters and coaches and managers say too, where when somebody misses weight, it's just like, well, fuck that guy. They're unprofessional. Um, they should know better. Uh, I don't feel sorry for him. And I think there's... A bigger picture that isn't really looked at here. So first off, obviously, if you sign on the dotted line to fight at a weight, um, whether you whatever you sign on the dotted line for in terms of a contract, generally you, you got to keep your word. And if you're not keeping your word, uh, that's a bad look for you. And obviously, as a fighter, if you're expecting your opponent to come in at a certain weight and they're coming in bigger than you, and you had to go through all the trouble to make weight and they didn't, and then the fight still happens, like that's still it's a pain in the ass, but it's important to recognize why this is even happening in the first place. Why are fighters missing weight is a big question here. And and if you think the answer is, oh, they're just some guys who don't give a shit and they're missing weight, you're off on that. A lot of these guys who are missing weight, like you take advantage, for example, Khabib Nurmagomedov, when he missed weight, it's not because he didn't give a shit or because he didn't care. If Khabib could have weighed in at 155, he would have weighed in at 155, the fight would have happened and Maybe now he'd be in line for a shot against McGregor and have an interim belt on his waist as well. But the thing is, is that as a fighter, there are a couple things to keep in mind. So first off, if you're in the UFC, if you lose once or twice, that could be it. You don't need to lose three straight fights to get kicked out of the UFC, especially at this point under WME when it seems like they're starting to trim the roster and get a little bit tighter in. So if you've got a fight booked, if you lose the fight that you're booked for right now, your next fight could be your last fight in the UFC. If you just lost your last fight and you're booked for a fight in the UFC, this could be your last fight. Really, any fight could be your last fight in the UFC. So when it's that important to win, when it's that much pressure to win, you don't want to be in a position where if I walk around at 100... For example, I walk around at 145. If I walk around at 145 pounds and I want to fight at 135, but the other guys fighting at 35 walk around at 155, and they're shredded, is it good for me that I'm going to fight them at a 10-pound disadvantage? Why Why put myself in a disadvantage when maybe the flyweights walk around at 45? Why wouldn't I just fight at 
125 if that's where everyone else is. So if you're in a position where your job, your career is dependent on constantly winning, why put yourself at a disadvantage? And if everybody else is cutting a severe amount of weight, you're kind of in a position where it's like either I'm going to stay at 35 in my case and I'm going to fight bigger guys than me and hopefully I have enough of a technical edge that I can beat them, which in some cases that's the case. Obviously, we've seen with Cerrone, he's a very technical fighter. He's beaten some really big 170 pounders when he's gone up to 170, but sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes you have guys who rely a little bit more on their physical attributes and they're working on their technique. They're in the gym working on their technique and improving it, but at this point, they're not quite at a point where they're going to dominate with it, so they've kind of got to use their physical attributes and work off of that in the meantime. So to take a fighter like that and say, hey, you've either got to go up a weight class, and especially at 155 where it's a 15-pound difference between 55 and 70, like the difference the difference there, like to go from fighting a guy like Eddie Alvarez to go to fighting a guy like Tyron Woodley, like that's a huge difference. So for these kinds of things, if you need to be competitive and keep your career going, you're going to have to force yourself to sign on a dotted line for a weight class that maybe you don't want to make and you'd prefer not to have to make. So the fighters are in a tough position there. And I think with California talking about having a 10% limit as far as what you can then weigh back in at, they're really working on making sure that everyone's kind of working within the same range. And if 10% works, 10% works, if they have to move it down to 8% in the future to make it more safe, then so be it. But that's really what they're trying to cover there. And that's why I'm really highly in favor of that. Uh, the other aspect is if a fighter doesn't make weight, it's not always because they give up. Now, certainly there are times where fighters, they realize everything that they're dealing with is tough. They'd rather just miss the weight and maybe just kind of have some treats while they're cutting weight as opposed to fighting through it. But in most cases, when guys aren't making weight, they're either at a point where their body is shutting down and their mind is saying, hey, I'm still willing to sit in the sauna for 30 more minutes or I'm still willing to ride this bike for 30 more minutes, but the body is just too dehydrated and they're just going to pass out. Or... Um, I mean, really, that's that's kind of what it comes down to. I feel like in most cases, it, it seems to me, especially with Khabib, Khabib was in a case where, or in a position where he was still willing to cut. He was still going to stay in that sauna and keep working to cut the final six pounds, but he couldn't do it because his body just gave out on him. His liver gave out on him. And at that point, you can say what you want, but I mean, if your body's not willing to do what your mind wants to do, can you really blame someone on their profession? call them unprofessional. I mean, professionalism, integrity, a lot of that, that's all kind of stuff that's handled within the mind. But if the body gives out on you, the body gives out on you. So for Khabib, yes, I'm very disappointed that he missed weight. I, we're going to see other guys miss weight in the future. I'm going to be disappointed when they miss weight too, especially if they have to miss their fight. But it's important to understand why they miss weight. And it's important to have a little bit more perspective than to just say, oh, well, they missed weight. They signed on the dotted line. They couldn't do it. Fuck them. There, there are more pressures at play, and hopefully if this California State Athletic Commission thing goes through and guys are forced to fight closer to the normal weight, hopefully people's bodies aren't going to be shutting down as much because they're not having such severe weight cuts, and hopefully people just aren't having to cut so much weight because everyone else in their weight class is going to be relatively similar in size, which is really what's important here. I touched on this before, and I'm going to obviously go back to it again for this week's promo of the week. So we talked about Dylan Dennis and how he went on the MMA hour, talked about how, how he was the highest paid fighter in Bellator and how that drew a lot of attention to him. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to start off by playing the clip of his interview with Ariel Hawani where he talks about being the highest paid fighter in Bellator. And then I'm going to show a few more clips of some other Bellator fighters and some other MMA media talking about Dylan Danis, who is a 0-0 zero zero professional fighter right now. Uh, hasn't won a world championship in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu yet. Obviously, he's won some other big tournaments, but not a world champion. 
not a Pan Amer- oh not a recent Pan American champion from this year. How he's gotten his name out there. How he's in a position now where whenever he does finally fight, there's going to be a lot of attention for him. I think at the end of the day, you know, they call me the money man. So when the <laughs> money calls, I picked up. So they offered you a deal that you couldn't refuse. Exactly. You know, I mean, that's what I'm looking for is the big money. So and it was just the right timing. I think uh, the CFFC was good, but the money was it was good. But, you know, I think I deserve more than that. So I just went with where the money was. Are you happy with the Bellator deal? Yeah, I'm very happy with it. I'm excited, you know. Were you surprised that they came this soon before you've had one amateur pro fight? I wasn't surprised. I mean, I have a bigger following and a bigger name than probably everybody on the roster. So, I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, I wasn't really surprised about it. They, they, I mean, it was, a right, it was a right move for them, you know. I mean, you could put any of those bums against me and then they'll get a name, so... And so what about the UFC? Given your connection with SBG, they have a good relationship with, uh, with, with the UFC. Did you, did you see if there was any interest there? Did you, before signing with Bellator, did you want to see what was, you know, what was the temperature over there as far as you going there? Yeah, I mean, we talked to the UFC. They were, you know, for them, it's, it's hard to sign someone that doesn't have them, uh, any fights. But, you know, I mean, we were in negotiations, but, I mean, Bellator came with the money in the beginning, but... In the future, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But, you know, at this time, it was just right at this time with Bellator and everything was right, the money was right, and they needed a star, you know, so. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the subtle. It's just, it's great. It's, 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 uh, it's very, you know, I, I appreciate it very much. How many, how many fights did you sign for? Four fights. Four fights. Could you give us a ballpark, like what this big money, I mean, I'm always curious, and I apologize for, for prying, but what are we talking about here as far as dollars and cents? I'm the highest paid guy in Bellator now, so that's what I could say. Is that true, really? Yeah, that's what, that's what I hear. <laughs> All right. Uh, wow. Well, that uh, I'm sure that will ruffle a few feathers. The venue is big. The platform is big. But with all due respect to, to Brent, he's not the biggest name. Um, and I know a lot of fans were like, Who, who's Brent Primus? I mean, he hasn't fought in a year. And I know that wasn't necessarily his fault. He was supposed to fight in February. Opponent got injured. But he just hasn't been active, hasn't been really pushed on the main card. Yeah. Did you know much about him? And regardless, what was your reaction when you found out that he would be your next opponent? You know, one thing Bellator does a good job of is signing young guys and, and getting them good fights and building them. And I mean, I, I knew Brent Primus was a guy I was going to fight eventually. Did I think I would be fighting him here at Madison Square Garden, defending the belt against him? No. You know, I think. Uh, it's not. It's it's definitely a little bit of an interesting matchup for this big of a card. Yeah. But I knew I was going to fight him eventually. Um, you know, I was honestly hoping some kind of super fight was going to materialize. I was asking for you know Michael Page, asking for uh, Paul Daly, the Rory McDonald. Obviously, those guys are fighting. You got Lorenz Larkin and all the all these guys. Uh, you got Dylan Danis who just came over talking all kinds of trash. Who he the guy's a, a nerd. But um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I'm excited to go out there and and compete no matter who it is. And Brent Primus is exactly where I was five years ago when I came in like a thief in the night and finished Eddie Alvarez and took took his title. So in this sport, when it's a game of inches and it's such a violent, turbulent sport where anything can happen inside that cage, you have to be ready. Brent Primus is just Brent, Brent Primus can, can uh can beat me just as easy as anybody else in the entire world because it's it's a fight and that's and that's what it is and you have to embrace the uncertainty. So 
no matter who it is, it's Madison Square Garden, June 24th, and I'm excited to go out there and compete. I would be remiss if I don't ask you about Dylan Dennis. You did retweet his, uh, his answer to me yesterday on my show. He said that he's the highest paid fighter in Bellator, and uh, you took exception. You don't think that he is telling the truth. No, absolutely not. And, you know, it, I mean, the, the Conor McGregor shtick is, is old. You know, Gallagher's trying to do it. And, I mean, there's only one Conor, man. You know, you give the guy credit where credit is due. Dylan, I mean, he's, he, I, I liken him bumbling like Chael was talking about Vanderlei bumbling 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 you know I mean he, he just can't talk so he doesn't have a mouthpiece on him so he needs to stick it stick to his lane and he needs to go out there and hopefully win fights in MMA he hasn't proven himself yet uh, but good for him good good for Bellator for picking him up um, we're pretty much the same weight so when he does prove himself that he actually might be a legitimate fighter you know let's do it but um, until then take his little paychecks and, and keep him in his back pocket and don't act like they're bigger than they actually are so Fair enough. Um, speaking of which, I mean, you're one of the big free agent signings for Bellator over the past year or so, but Dylan Dennis yesterday on my show said that he, in fact, is the highest paid fighter in Bellator, and this has ruffled some feathers. Do you think that this is possible? I mean, we don't know everyone's salary like in your former life in right. the NFL. Is this possible? Could he be the highest paid fighter in Bellator? I don't even really know who he is. So, like, if that's the case, I mean... A, good for him. Like, I'm, I'll never hate anybody, but that means I'm going back to the negotiating table. Uh, Does that piss you off hearing that? No, it's great because that means I'll get more money because <laughs> somebody I've never heard of is not going to get paid more than me. Right. Um, and on top of that, like, I get paid well. So if he gets paid well, I mean, hell, good job, buddy. But like I said, I, I, don't, I don't know who he is.